My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. Here's a riddle for you. What will you almost certainly choose to give in your life, but also find hard, onerous, maybe stressful? What do you probably hope you won't have to rely on, yet when you do, you'll welcome it with open and grateful arms? What will be one of the most important parts of your life, yet one you might struggle even to define? The answer to all these questions is care. And care is the subject of a tremendous, moving, vital new book by Madeleine Bunting. I'm delighted to be joined by Madeleine for the latest edition of Bridges to the Future. Hi, Madeleine. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Matthew. So I want to start discussing your book with, you know, where it came from. And I think, in a sense, the answer, to an extent, is in the title. So when did you first decide you wanted to write a book about care? It was a subject that I'd always had a keen interest in because it was so personal. You know, you spend quite a bit of time doing care, having kids, etc. But I think I got to a point about five or six years ago when I sort of looked back at aspects of my career and of my life and thought, you know, people ask about my work, what am I doing? And yet so rarely ask about my care responsibilities. And at that particular point, they felt very acute. I didn't have toddlers. I had teenagers. I had elderly parents. And actually, that point of care is, I think, the most challenging. And so the challenges of care don't ease off. They become more and more acute. And so that got me thinking, why is it that we spend so much time valuing and discussing and thinking about career? And yet care is an activity that lasts throughout the life course. I looked at a generation ahead of me. And it's even more of an issue for them, both who is caring for them and who are they caring for. People in their 80s and 90s still involved in this labour of love, which lasts our lifetime. So I think it was a sort of sense that this is something enormous, which gets so routinely overlooked. And that was the sort of starting point for the book. And the process of writing it, the book is called Labours of Love. The process of writing it has also been a labour of love. I think it's taken you all around the country and into some incredibly intense situations. Yes, I think I didn't really quite see that coming. The emotional kind of load of writing the book was wearing because I was choosing to place myself in contexts of deep suffering and enormous courage but sometimes people overwhelmed by the nature of their care responsibilities. And I realised that's what a paid carer, whether that's care professional or a care worker, routinely has to do. So I had a little, little taste of what they do every day, which is expose yourself to human suffering, whether that's the sort of bravery of an elderly person as they come to terms with the loss the multiple losses of mobility, of health, of partners, and so forth. And of course, you know, people who choose to work with the dying, 
which is a, perhaps the most acutely emotional work of all. So I came away from many of my interviews sort of hastily wiping a tear and also kind of overawed, really, how people managed to develop a kind of cheerfulness and emotional stability to routinely deal with the sorts of situations that I was encountering. See, one of the things I want to say about this book, which utterly engrossed me over the last few days as I've been reading it, and it's a book I wish I'd read 20 years ago in many ways, because it's had a profound impact on me, is that you know people listening might think, oh, well, this is a kind of specialist book. It's about a specialist thing, care. That's a kind of part of the labour market. This book is not about a specialist subject. This book is about the matter of life itself and how we think about it and how we think about each other, which takes me to the question we ask everybody on this podcast, Madeline, which is, Madeline Monteen, what is your big idea for the world we're moving into as hopefully one day COVID recedes? Well, I thought long and hard, long before COVID erupted, as to the central problem around care, which is that we seem politically trapped. We go through inquiry after inquiry, commission after commission, erratic media outbursts of outrage about poor quality care. And yet we don't really seem to be able to shift the dial. We don't seem to be able to grasp where aspects of our care system are so precarious, where the gaps are multiple and people fall through those gaps routinely, causing such suffering. So I call it a quiet crisis buried in human lives. Now, COVID has turned a spotlight on all of this. It's ripped through all of those gaps, causing the deaths that we've seen and been so shocked by. So my question that I had uppermost in my mind is how and what will make this situation change? How is it that we break the logjam and really manage to address this issue and think about care in a different way? Because it's not just about money. I think that would be a terrible mistake to think we just move millions into this sector. It definitely requires more funding, but it also requires a different way of thinking about relationship and risk and trust. So my job is to try and get people to think and look more closely at care. First of all, I say, if we could just be curious about what it is, rather than just assuming, oh, you know, it's care, it's a package, we just get a package in. I can't bear the word package, which appears all over social care. Packages of care as if they're bits or can be delivered. The point about care is it's about relationship and we flinch away from that. So I wanted to really open people's minds and get them to think about what is the nature of that relationship. And it seems to me that if we can reimagine care and begin to understand the complexity of it and the enormous potential richness of it in terms of grappling with the human condition, then we have a chance of all the kind of political and policy changes that could then follow on from that. So that's what my book is about, is trying to get people to reimagine care, not as a sort of work of dreary, but something that actually can be profoundly meaningful. So it must have been an amazing moment for you, having written the book, presumably it's with the publishers. And then we get this COVID moment of applauding in the streets on Thursday evenings of an outpouring of admiration and empathy towards key workers, a recognition of the incredibly parlous state of social care provision and care home provision. All these points in your book being absolutely struck home during the COVID crisis. 
Does that lead you to believe that this is a critical pivot, that this is a moment, that if we don't seize this moment when our eyes have really been opened to so many of the issues in your book, then when are we going to? Well, there are many sort of responses to that over the last few months. On the positive side, I would say yes, if not now, when? We have suddenly been made aware of our own vulnerability, of our dependence on some of the kind of lowest paid people in our society, how we utterly depend on them. Now, my book was trying to write that and COVID comes along and makes that graphically clear. So there is a possibility. People say, well, we're going to be a lot poorer. Our economy is going to be very, very badly bashed by COVID. That's quite clear. On the other hand, look at 1948. We just had a Second World War, which had virtually bankrupted the British state. 1947, a huge economic crisis. And they still plunged ahead into this astonishing, amazingly ambitious proposal to nationalise the health service. So we are capable of these big, bold leaps into the future with real vision and compassion. The question is whether this crisis is going to prompt that or prompt the opposite, which is a sort of withdrawal, a pulling up the drawbridge, because solidarity is essential here. Solidarity is what built the NHS in 1948. And solidarity is absolutely what underpins care relationships and cultures of care. I talk about cultures, really. That's organisations where individuals find it possible to care. And what worried me about clapping on the doorstep is the danger is that while we were giving a welcome recognition to care workers and key workers, my fear was at the same time we were falling into that historic trap of regarding care work as the work of heroes, angels, saints. And that's an idealisation, a romanticisation, which has dogged the history of care for centuries. When you idealise and romanticise care, you often forget to pay people properly, recognise that they need decent terms and conditions, and you expect too much of them. Care workers can't keep giving if they're not given back to. Care is a circle, and I got very interested in the concept of the gift economy, which interestingly, some describe the NHS as a gift economy. And the key thing about Mouse's insight, the anthropologist's insight into the gift economy and how it's structured, is the gift must keep moving. You cannot just sit there being a recipient of care. You must in some way, at some point in your life course, and have cared for, have, if you like, sort of passed it on. And that sense of care as a gift that must keep moving, it's really interesting. It's there. It's buried in millions of people's understanding of care. You know, interviewing care workers who, you know, would often start their interviews saying to me, oh, I don't have anything much to say. And, you know, they didn't regard themselves as particularly articulate. And yet, I swear, you know, they'd sit there talking with an eloquence that was astonishing to them and me. You know, they would be surprised at the end of the interview saying, I had no idea I could say all that. Because it was inarticulated inside them, their understanding of care as a gift, as something they put into the system so that in due course, when they needed it, it would be there for them. I found that profoundly moving. Yeah, as I read those accounts, as you say, incredibly articulate and warm and honest and sometimes tragic. The idea for me, Madeline, was that care is a craft. You know, they described 
the kind of nuances of care and your relationship to the person you're caring in a way that I don't know a carpenter might describe the wood that they're working with that you have to fully appreciate it and understand it otherwise you won't be able to create something through it and I've never really thought of care as a craft but it is a craft isn't it I think that's a beautiful word for it some describe it as an art some as a craft I think these are exactly the right verbs to use because it requires a constant self-reflective process. The carer is constantly having to readjust their expectations, their understandings in a dynamic process because whoever they're caring for, their needs are obviously unpredictable and shifting. So the child, the sick person, the dying person, the elderly person, you're constantly having to think, well, you know, is this the right way to do this? And that kind of intuitive self-reflective process is a reflection actually of humanity that is sort of accessible. So the wonderful, wonderful man that had spent his career in maintenance, you know, he'd been repairing plumbing and roofs and gutters, etc. most of his life and had turned to care because he didn't want to, you know, twiddle his thumbs. And to his amazement, he discovered that he could do it. And that was a remarkable thing. And it made him a better man. I remember, Madeline, that his family said, oh, you know, he used to be a bit of a grumpy bugger, but he's now so much more open and friendly and at home in himself. And actually, I think there's a really significant point there, that care makes us human. It not only is an expression of our humanity, but it also actually makes us human. The more we find we're capable of bringing relief or joy to another person, the more we feel our own humanity. And I think lots of parents would say, yeah, that's true. You know, that's how I felt about bringing my kids up. Well, actually, that can apply to other situations. You know, very moving people describing to me that the privilege of caring for their elderly parents. Now, it doesn't work that way for everyone. And I'm not saying it should. Relationships with parents are complex. But even the idea that it could be, that it might be, seems to me to have been kind of pushed to the margins. But I got a very moving email yesterday from a woman describing the 24-7 care that she gave her elderly father for the last three years of his life. Now, most people would say, oh, God, that's a catastrophe. I don't know how you could do that. And you're a saint. She said, it was the most extraordinary experience of my life. I learned a huge amount and I'm delighted I did it. That's such a powerful theme of the book, you know, because I'm going to open up I'm one of those people who thinks I couldn't, you know, being a parent in the best way that I can, but I kind of think, well, I'm not someone who's good at care, partly because I'm just so self-obsessed and narcissistic and partly because I can't cope with kind of sick and poo and all that kind of, I can't deal with all that stuff. You know, obviously I did with my kids, but one of the things that's so powerful in your book is the kind of sense that you probably can, I probably can care. It's just that in a sense you have to kind of, open up to it. It reminded me, there's a line, a John Updike line, where he says, one of the most amazing things about children is how they give us the courage we need to defend them. And that idea that in the process of caring, you go through this journey of self, some people, not everybody, you you don't romanticize in your book, but but people go through this process of self-discovery. That was so powerful for me. And it made me want to go out, literally made me want to go out and find somebody that I could provide care to in order to find out more about myself. Oh, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful response. And I would share many of the things you've said. I think I consciously, as a young woman, decided I'm not going to be a carer. I reacted really strongly against it. You know, I was part of a generation that were determined to sort of crash into the new opportunities that were opening up for young women in the early 1980s. 
And, you know, becoming a mother was actually quite a difficult process for me. I was quite unwilling and I thought work was actually much more interesting. So there was a slow shifting as I began to realise what caring for children really entailed. And like you, I've never defined myself as a carer. You know, I'm much happier with a book in my hand. But I do think that it's a bit of a cop out to say, oh, I just couldn't do that. Well, I don't know. Find out is the kind of response I've got. And there are bits that you can do. And maybe there are bits that you can't. I'm like you. I'm terribly squeamish. I mean, I wretch any time I come anywhere near vomit. But, you know, like you say, that wonderful Updike quote, the courage, you know, we learn to deal with that with our kids. So why can't we learn to deal with that with other people? I mean, one of the most moving things was witnessing people whose partners suddenly fell ill. And, you know, a couple of male partners who had clearly done very little of the caring of the children, had done very little care at all. They had extremely ambitious, demanding careers. But boy, could they do it. They really could do it. And they could do every aspect of it. And I thought, well, if they can do it, I'm not going to let anyone have the cop out anymore. Your book is very moving, but it's also intellectually incredibly stimulating. You quote a whole variety of feminist perspectives, philosophical perspectives, spiritual perspectives on care. But the other thing that the book put me in mind of actually is I often look at ideas through the kind of prism of the kind of founding fathers of sociologists, because I'm a sociologist. And I found myself being reminded of them to an extent. So, you know, Weber's notion of the iron cage of rationality. And when you describe care settings, particularly kind of NHS and care homes, that this kind of vying between the kind of rationality of organisations where everything has to be measured and monitored versus the incredibly kind of personal, individual, almost idiosyncratic elements of care. I can't imagine any society, any modern society that isn't going to have to deal with that kind of inherent tension in care systems. I think you phrased it very, very well. I think that is why, for example, those high status jobs like GPs, whom I interviewed and shadowed, feel that their concept of care is just as much under threat as a sort of social care worker rushing from one appointment to the next. I think that this is where I would say this is not just about a huge amount of more money. It's also about rethinking organisations and structures and systems and At the end of the book, I do look at a few examples of where I think people are trying to sort of rattle the cages, Weber's iron cage. Hilary Cotton's work, I think, is fascinating. Alex Fox at Shared Lives. They're trying to put relationship back in the centre of it. And I point to Denmark and its concept of social pedagogy. And here it gets into a territory which, you know, is a bit beyond my pay grade. But for some reason, the British social work system completely sort of ground down into bureaucracy and assessment and regulation and deep, deep anxiety about risk. And when you look at an alternative tradition, such as the social pedagogy tradition in Denmark, it's like a breath of fresh air. They absolutely had central to their understanding of what it is to work with another human being, the idea of human potential, the idea of how do you nurture human potential at whatever stage, in whatever context, whether that's somebody with disabilities or an elderly person. And that sense of sort of optimistic possibility somehow seems to have been occluded in British society. It's almost as if we've lost sight of human potential. And that's kind of, I think it's quite frightening. So whereas I feel optimistic about this innate capacity to care in human beings, I feel it's got obscured, it's got hidden, 
And that's why I'm digging away to sort of, you know, it's almost excavated. And some of the people that it's got hidden from are some of the most intelligent and highly educated people in this country. But their rationality is so removed from actually this kind of stuff of human relationship. The other person I thought of in the book was Durkheim in the sense that he identified the characteristic of modern society as being the division of labour. And of course, that's what's happened with care in the sense that before industrialization, care was just for the vast majority of people. I mean, obviously, the very rich have always got poorer people to do their caring for them. But for the vast majority of people, care was just what you did as part of life. And then we get the kind of division of labour and we get the emergence of caring professions. Now, Durkheim thought that the division of labour would strengthen society because there would be an appreciation of our interdependence. But that's not really what's happened with care. And one of the things, of course, it's obvious, I know, but struck me so much in your book is that the incredible skill of care, the incredible need that we have for care, the incredible importance of this work, yet it's so badly paid, yet its status is so low. And I felt this just holds up a mirror to our society. And again, going back to COVID, you know, one of the things about that focus on key workers was a kind of stark understanding of the gap between market value and social value. Yeah. I have to say also that what influenced me a lot on this kind of aspect of this was the wonderful work that the RSA did with Ian McGilchrist, the psychiatrist, whose magnificent piece, The Master and His Emissary, the idea that we've overdeveloped certain aspects of our human capabilities, this rational, analytical side of our minds, and what we've underdeveloped in our culture is the more intuitive, poetic, things that can't be necessarily kind of pinned down. So, the, the, you know, the, the, this desperate desire to quantify the drive for efficiency and convenience, it crushes other aspects of our humanity. And I think McGilchrist put that magnificently, and the RSA did some wonderful work on that, which I drew on. So this is, you know, my attempt to sort of point out that what actually makes life meaningful is the bit that we, you know, we become incredibly clever at all sorts of technological challenges and scientific challenges. What we've been much, much less perceptive and wise about is understanding what makes human beings find meaning and purpose. And I think rising incidents of mental health is a reflection of that. Yuval Harari, in his book Homo Deus, has this very, very neat summing up. He says we've traded meaning for convenience and for power. Although it has to be said, COVID has challenged that convenience. You know, life is not very convenient. We can't hop on a plane to New York tomorrow. But what we've certainly done is abandon meaning in very, very key important ways. Finally, on my kind of tour of sociological founding figures, I also thought a bit about Marx and the notion of alienation. And, and what interested me there was the notion that many of the care workers you spoke to, inspirational, amazing people, but many of them feeling alienated from their work because of the circumstances under which they were required to do it. You felt the pain of the distance between the way they wanted to work, the way they wanted to feel about their work, and the way that they were encouraged to feel about the work or the constraints under which they worked. And reflecting on that, you know, one of the paradoxes of that is how is it as a society we treat care workers so badly when care is something that we will ourselves need and care is something which we will ourselves provide? Surely that would give us enormous empathy for people who are paid to do stuff that we understand ourselves from our own experience, how vital and important it was. And then I thought of another thinker, Ernest Becker, and his notion of the denial of death. And I wondered how much, Madeline, if this is just fear, 
It's just that we don't want to have to think about it and that we you know, have to go through quite a lot of kind of psychological effort to push to the back of our minds the reality of care. And it is by pushing it to the back of our minds because we don't want to think about our own vulnerability. We don't want to think about our own death. That's part of what allows us to be so negligent towards those people who are employed as carers. I think that's spot on. I think it's absolutely to do with fear. And I think other cultures and other historical times have actually provided human beings with more resources to deal with that fear. So I would say that we've always been frightened of sickness, ageing and death, of course. We've always been frightened of that. But I think there have been systems of thought that have helped inspire in human beings the courage to face those realities of the human condition. And the, the loss of systems of meaning I think leaves us very, very sort of stripped bare before a sort of existential kind of crisis, really. You know, we have no way of making meaning from suffering. It's almost like it's a lottery. It's unfair. I mean, that sort of daft phrase, you don't deserve this. Well, I've never understood who does deserve a terrible terminal diagnosis. Nobody does deserve it. Deserving has got nothing to do with it. You know, we're not preparing people for... (laughs) unfortunately, what is part of life, which is suffering. And we're not giving them any way to make meaning from that suffering. So I think the loss of those kinds of systems of belief impoverishes us. There's a kind of, you know, existential tragedy there. And I think, look, consumerism is a big part of that, because a big part of the propaganda, the pervasive, ubiquitous propaganda of consumerism is that, you know, if you buy enough stuff, you don't have to suffer. And that, of course, is a terrible kind of myth and trap to fall into. You know, James Baldwin said people can cope with almost anything once they know where reality is. But it seems to me so much of modern culture and consumerism is about actually encouraging us not to face up to reality. Now, Madam, we're drawing to a close. I could talk to you for hours, but at the end of the podcast, I always like to ask a couple of questions, which aren't criticisms at all, but they're kind of challenges to the author. And even though I'm bowled over by your book, I'm going to subject you to those questions as well. So the first one is, how do we value care, kind of professional care, paid care, on the one hand, without that at the same time somehow commodifying it? That feels to me to be a bit of a tangle. In a sense, you can see elements of this with nursing, which is as it's become professionalised, it's also some people have argued it's lost its kind of more empathic, caring kind of connotation. So can we both value it at the same time as not ultimately commodifying it? Well, this is, you know, kind of question that I suspect you'd be better at answering than me, actually, Matthew. You've got a much kind of clearer grasp on organisational structures and so forth. But it seems to me that the care that a GP provides is not commodified unless you privatise and incentivize with all sorts of target structures the nature of what they're doing. So what the GPs I was talking to were resisting was that way that if they, you know, did a certain number of sort of, you know, kind of blood pressure tests, they got a bonus for the practice. That seems to me commodifying care. But they couldn't commodify the capacity of the GP to really be present with a patient in distress. I mean, there was one very moving GP who described to me a drug addict who was just in a terrible place. And there was nothing that GP felt he could do in terms of, you know, pills or whatever. But he could be a human being and sit in front of her and say, I'm here and I will be here next week if you need me. And that kind of continuity of relationship, of witnessing, of being prepared to witness suffering – 
it's a really important part of care. And I'm not sure you can commodify that. I don't know what the tick box looks like, you know, that would sort of recognize that. So I think this is about professional autonomy. I think this takes us into, you know, other related debates about trust and how we give professions a degree of autonomy and judgment so that we know that the GP is actually best placed to judge what care is required. Is this person taking up his time when he needs or she needs to reallocate it? Or does this person absolutely rely on that five-minute appointment with the GP once a month, which is what one GP said to me. She said, that young woman that's just been in, that you've just listened to, she's had a history of suicide. So coming to see me to discuss various trivial things, I couldn't see the significance of the appointment, but she said, my presence, I believe, helps her stabilise herself. Now, how do you commodify that? That's about the judgment, the wise judgment of a remarkable GP. And she was remarkable because she certainly had no time for time wasters. So, you know, we must trust her kind of judgment. That seems to me to be key. Yeah, I completely agree, Madeline. I think it is around organisational design. And I know you don't mention the Dutch organisation Burtzorg in your book, but that model, I think, shows that you can reconcile notions of performance management, people doing the right thing, being accountable with care, because their model, which is that domiciliary care is provided through small self-organizing teams, no management, virtually no bureaucracy, a model in which they see their work as being the third outer circle, that the first circle is to support the individual to be as independent and to autonomous as they can be. The second is to support the family and community to support the individual. And they are there to support those two rings rather than to push those out of the way. But the interesting thing about Berksall is it's often quoted as an example of a highly decentralized, radically different kind of organization. But if you talk to its leader, Joster Block, data is really important. They provide every team with really strong data about how well they're performing. And if a team is underperforming, they bring in a coach, not a manager, but a coach. And the coach then sits with the team and says, okay, what can we see? What can we do to make things better? And I noticed in your book, some of the most positive descriptions you gave of organizations were people in teams, discussing things in teams, supporting each other in teams. So I think it's perfectly possible to do this. Last question. My wife, when she was much younger, did some time working in a care home. And she often talks about it. And I don't think I'd fully understood the importance it had in shaping her until I I read your book. It made me wish that I'd had that experience. Do you think there is a case for a national caring service? Do you think there is an argument that is that every young person should give six months of their life to working in some kind of you know, caring way. I understand there would be problems if there are people who are not suited to it. But nevertheless, having read your book, I thought we all should have this experience. We all should discover what emerges in ourselves were in those contexts. And my goodness, we could certainly do with, you know, more people out there supporting the caring services. I think that's a great idea. I mean, there's an enormous amount of kind of how it's done that would be critical. And to raise one of the points you made earlier about Bertzog, the idea of team working. So if you had young people who had mentors and were part of teams, and the teams were helping encourage them to understand what they could get out of it in terms of their own development, etc. It could be an amazing thing to do. I think it could be an absolutely fantastic thing. And I was very struck, for example, by this wonderful 19-year-old carer. She had been a beauty therapist. Well, I mean, you know, lots of people would have said her, you know, can she really make the transition? 
And she loved care work, absolutely loved it. She said, you know, what's the difference, you know, making someone's nails look good? It's got nothing on the way in which I get a smile from somebody at the end of my time helping them. And I know I've changed their day. I know it. And there she was with, you know, this wonderful kind of piercings all over and tattoos. And I suspect most of her clients kind of did a double take when she appeared in their houses. And yet she described relationships she'd built with those characters with such affection. So, you know, there's so much more that we're capable of than we realize. And I think young people, this being kind of opened up to them as an idea, and it really needs inspiring figures. I mean, I think so much to do with care comes back to inspiration. You know, time and time again, when I ask people, you know, how did you learn or how did you become a carer? They would cite the inspiration of experiencing or witnessing care. And sometimes it was grandparents, sometimes it was a senior nurse when they were just starting out or something like that. But, you know, we are inspired by others to care. And we know that with our children because we fall back on that inspiration, whether it's our own parents or other parents that we've observed that we think, yeah, I want to do it like that. That's how I want to do it. So, you know, we need role models. And if every 19-year-old is doing, I don't know, a few months of care work inspired by their role models, it could be amazing. Well, Madeline, let's think about starting a campaign for a national caring service. You know, if you want to experience care but you aren't able to do it kind of hands-on, I suggest to you that reading Labours of Love, Madeline's book, is the closest you can get without actually doing it. It is a fantastic book. I'm always polite about the books that we talk about on this podcast. You know, every book's got great virtues, but yours is special. And I, I'm i going to say this. Go out, get a copy of Labours of Love by Madeline Bunting, and if it doesn't move you if it doesn't change the way you view the world, you can email me and I will buy it off you and give it to my friends. That's how brilliant I think this book is. Madeline, thank you so much for giving me your time. Thank you, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.